Hi, and welcome to On Course, the podcast from Echoing Green that explores social entrepreneurship and the pieces of people's lives that they tend to leave out of their bios. Echoing Green is a premier global investor in new leaders who are boldly working to change the world, providing fellowships, community, seed stage funding, and strategic support at that critical stage where they're just trying to get off the ground. My name is Eric Dawson. I'm a father, husband, social entrepreneur, storyteller, and I have the distinct honor of serving as a chaplain for Equine Green. I, along with my colleagues, support fellows on their spiritual and emotional well-being as they mediate between who they often feel they need to be publicly with how they often feel privately. I'm a fraud. I'm not good enough. I don't know what I'm doing. On Course is about the journey that these leaders take from the moment they decide to act, to create, to change. Today I'm joined by Steph Spears. She's a co-founder and the CEO of Solstice, a social enterprise working to expand access to solar energy by offering community-based solar to underserved American households. Steph, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So we'll talk about Solstice in a moment, but I want to start with how you knew you wanted to change the world. Like, what was that moment, maybe growing up, maybe in early adulthood, when you knew that this was the path you were going to go on? So when I was really young, I'm from Hawaii, and the first time I had been to the mainland, as we call it, I it was winter in D.C., and we were walking down the street, and I was holding my dad's hand, and I saw someone who was shivering violently from being in the cold, and I recognized that they were homeless, and I was probably in sixth grade, and I couldn't really understand why so many people were walking by them and ignoring this person who was so uncomfortable and so cold and and why no one cared. And so that was a moment where I thought, we're in the nation's capital and people are walking by unaware of this person's pain. And then later, my mom ended up leaving my dad because he ended up not being that nice a guy. And she raised three kids alone on a poverty line kind of salary. And I remember we had been bouncing around for a couple years without a place to live. Um, And my mom had finally, through working three jobs, minimum wage, she saved up enough money to get a place of our own. And I remember walking in and she uncovered our eyes. And this is what we saw. We saw a dirty one bedroom apartment that the four of us would share, dirty floors, dirty hallways. And... I also saw my mom's huge smile beaming back at me, and she said, isn't this amazing? This is ours. This is our home. And it was that moment that I realized that that the American dream is very much like the immigrant story. My mom is an immigrant, and she, as a single mom who raised three kids, as an immigrant, you give up everything. You give up your cultural comfort, your native tongue, and your home, and you go out in the world and you forge a reality that you can only imagine and not yet see. And in that moment, I realized, wow, this is, I am the way I am because my mom is this entrepreneur and immigrant. She would never call herself an entrepreneur, but she's going out and trying to make a world that she can only imagine and not yet see. And so it's, her strength has given me the opportunity to to take my privilege that I've had and try to make things a little more just 
for people who are like my mom who struggle and who get discriminated against for reasons that are not their fault. So this sort of innate justice lens in terms of how you look at the world, this personal story of um, transformation, and then you move into the space of, of privilege. Tell me about that transition and what that was like for you and, and what you take from that experience of having mediated so many different worlds. There's, I think, an Isaac Newton quote that says, if I have seen farther, it is because I stood on the shoulders of giants. And that's the way I feel about my mom. So the first 20 years of my life were somewhat difficult. We were uh, you know, eating based off of food stamps for a little while there, bouncing from home to home. But because of my mom sacrificing so much, I got an amazing education. I got scholarships to go to a private high school that allowed me to get the grades to go uh, to a good college. And she had always taught us that wealth was not the accumulation of money and things. Wealth was about what no one can take away from you once you have it. So she defined wealth in one way as the knowledge that's in your head, your education. And she said, this is the one way we can get out of poverty, is you have to study hard and work hard. So the last 10 years of my life have been extraordinarily privileged, and it's because of the lessons she instilled in me. And so I have often felt really guilty about my privilege, you know, walking around in really fancy schools, um, in rooms now as a CEO that my mother would never be able to walk into because she speaks with an accent or she has a blue-collar job. And it doesn't really make sense with my really fierce, amazing mother, who's better at everything than I am, could never walk into these rooms. But I get to walk into these rooms by virtue of my education or my job. And so that guilt, I realize, is unproductive. The reason why privilege, I think, makes can make sense is if you use that privilege to open up opportunities for other people who don't have access to that privilege. That's the only sense I can make of having such a lucky life that my mother could never have. And so how do you then use your privilege to, to create opportunity? What does that look like? I think I consider my personal mission in life is to create communities and organizations that allow struggling families to access the same opportunities I've been able to have. So I've had a ton of different jobs in my life, actually, but from my mind, they're all connected because they've all had to do with chipping away at inequality. And inequality is such a big, big problem. It's almost like this boulder, and you you can imagine Sisyphus trying to roll the boulder up the hill. And the only way I can try to conceptualize addressing inequality is chipping away at the boulder. And we're all, we all have a role to chip away at the boulder and we all take a piece in it. And we're, no one's going to have a silver bullet to solve this problem. Together we can address it by chipping it away and turning the big boulder into tiny pebbles. And what have you found to be some of the more powerful tools for doing that work? In solstice or in, 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 my life in general. Let's talk uh, life in general, and, and then let's talk about solstice and, and the inspiration behind that. It kind of goes back to that definition of wealth that my mom talked about. It's everything that no one can take away from you once you have. Even if you do not have a dollar to your name, what can you still do? You still have your words. Even if you are have no money, you have your words. And as Barack Obama says, uh, 
a voice can change a room, a room can change a city block, a city block can change a city, a city can change a state, and a state can change a country, and a country can change the world. And it starts with one voice in one room. So you have that. That's a form of wealth. The other is time. You know, we all have the same time in the day. And how we choose to spend our time is an act of generosity. And how we choose to spend our time affects other people around us. And the privilege is choosing to spend your time in a way that makes the world a more just and equitable place. And one of the places you started was with Obama. Was yeah. with the campaign. Yeah. Um, <laughs> How old were you when you when you started working the campaign, and what motivated that decision? Because um, it was early. Yeah, I got to be honest. When I joined, I wasn't sure he would win. I just really wanted to help and work for him. So I joined in uh, s- spring of two thousand seven, and I talk about privilege and luck. I graduated college at that time, and it was the perfect time to jump on the Obama campaign and. My first job for the first year of that campaign was just knocking doors 12 hours a day as a community organizer and state after state after state in the primaries. And you would knock on people's doors and they would have no idea who Barack Obama was. And you would organize a house party and two people would show up and that wasn't a failure. And then by the end, a year later, 60,000 people rallies were, mm. you know, were common. And so to be able to be a small part of that that change and growth was so formative for everything I even do today. I joke that there are two jobs I've had that are very similar to being a CEO. One was when I was a waitress at Bubba Gump Shrimp Company in high school. And the other is when I was knocking doors for 12 hours a day. And and why is that? What what are the lessons from that 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 bring you to your CEO role? A CEO in a lot of ways is a community organizer. Uh, You have to try to rally people around a vision that isn't reality yet. And hopefully it's a vision that makes the world a better place. But it's because the risks are high and it's all sight unseen, a lot of the job is just talking to people one-on-one and building a relationship and building trust. They say you can only move at the speed of trust, and I think that's true of CEOs and and community organizers. So when I would walk up to a door and knock on the door, I didn't know if they were going to yell at me or shut the door in my face or or be kind and answer my questions. And it makes you immune to rejection, which is a kind of superpower when you're a founder. If you're not afraid of rejection anymore, you can actually do amazing things because there's no harm in trying. That's Steph Spears, a co-founder and the CEO of Solstice. I'm Eric Dawson, the host of On Course, the podcast from Echoing Green. And we'll be back with more after a break. On Course is produced by Echoing Green. For more than 30 years, Echoing Green has been on the front lines of solving the world's biggest problems. We find emerging leaders with the best ideas for social innovation as early as possible and set them on a path to lifelong impact. Our community of almost 1,000 social innovators includes past fellows like First Lady Michelle Obama, major public figures like Van Jones, and the founders of organizations like Teach for America and One Acre Fund. Built and refined over 30 years, our process discovers tomorrow's leaders today. Join us as we support a new generation of social impact leaders. 
Learn more at echoinggreen.org. Welcome back. I'm Eric Dawson, and you're listening to On Course, the podcast from Echoing Green. I'm speaking with Steph Spears, a co-founder and the CEO of Solstice. So after the election, you decided to go into the administration to work with the National Security Council on Middle East issues. Tell me about that choice and what that experience was like. Yeah, I'd actually interviewed, and my boss said, you know, this job is basically to be an assistant, and you're going to answer the phone, you're going to get my lunch, and you're going to escort foreign nationals around so they don't steal stuff. And you're in your mid-20s, you're probably overqualified for this. And he said, do you want the job? And I said, yes, definitely. Because in D.C., everyone wants a seat at the table, but no one wants to do the work to get the seat at the table. And I just wanted to learn. I didn't know enough about the Middle East. And and so I just learned under this really empowering, wonderful boss. And another stroke of luck, I was working in the Middle East office, and suddenly the Arab Spring happened. And there was more work to do than time to do it in. And before I know it, uh, he he very kindly promoted me to have a policy director position. It was highly, I think, every job I've ever had, including this current one. The commonality between all of them is that I have been spectacularly unqualified for every job. And so as a policy director for Yemen during the Arab Spring, I had to learn quick. Uh, and and that's actually when I discovered the importance of renewable energy in that job. So walk through that discovery and, and the origin of Solstice. And I know as a social entrepreneur, there's a certain story you tell again and again, right, as, as part of your pitch. Take us beneath that. And why Solstice? Why this work? Why this pathway? I was at the White House in what I thought was my dream job. And it was an amazing, incredible opportunity. I was 25 and traveling to Saudi Arabia and Yemen with the National Security Advisor advising him on on Yemen policy. But when we would drive through the streets of Sana'a, which is the capital of Yemen, we would look out the windows of our armored vehicles and see people lined up waiting for fuel. Because terrorists were blowing up oil pipelines, people could not get the power they needed to power their homes, families, and lives, and businesses. And so I realized we were spending all of our time in policy talking about counterterrorism, and we were talking about how to get a dictator out of power. Yet when I looked at my window, it was very clear I wasn't helping ordinary people with the thing that they were most concerned with, which was power. And so nothing will make you love renewable energy like living the geopolitics of our oil policy in the Middle East. And so um, you had this kind of top line sense of what oil does politically, uh, how it's connected to poverty, um, how it's connected to the planet. Translate those really big interconnected issues with starting a, a company. Yeah, there was one more intermediate step between that. And I thought, you know, I know nothing about the private sector. I've worked in policy and nonprofits and and capital and business. I perceive to be an important force in the world, and I want to go learn more about it. So I left my dream job at the time, and I went and became an intern for an impact investment company in Pakistan, investing in renewable energy companies. 
And then I took a job with one of their portfolio companies, a solar lantern and, and home systems company in India. And I was working in India, and my co-founder and I were also working on a solar microgrid project in India. And we had this moment where we realized that we didn't have to be halfway across the world to work on energy access. In fact, we could probably be more helpful if we were serving our own communities that we knew best. And back home in America, there were no people that we, there wasn't anyone that we knew that had solar on their roof. And yet solar was getting more and more sexy. The cost of solar was dropping. And yet we couldn't find anybody, any friends that had solar on their roof. So we said, okay, let's try to work on that problem. And so um, tell me about Solstice. What do y'all do? How does it work? What's your vision? Yeah, when we looked into this problem, we realized that 80% of Americans cannot actually put solar on their own home. And it's a ton of reasons. They're a renter. They're a condo owner. There's a tree covering their roof. Their roof faces the wrong way. It's made out of the wrong materials. And you realize you kind of have to be a unicorn to put solar on your roof, even in a place like America. And yet, Solar is now cheap enough. As of 2017, it's as cheap as fossil fuels in certain parts of the world. And the World Economic Forum, Lazard, Bloomberg, they all say it's, we're going to get there everywhere in the next decade. So solar's cheap, but no one can get it. And this was right around 2015. So we were just hearing about this new type of solar that was really more of a concept than in practice commercially. But we decided to start Solstice to work on this new type of solar. And this new type of solar that we offer at Solstice is called community solar. So community solar means you don't have to worry about installing anything on your home. You can buy a portion of a neighborhood shared solar farm and switch to solar that way. It's a subscription model, so you don't pay anything up front. You're just paying for the power that's produced by your share, and you pay for it at a discount to what you would have paid the utility. In other words, you don't put anything on your home, you don't pay anything up front, you save money immediately compared to what you pay the utility. So this is the most affordable and accessible type of clean energy out there. And that's really significant for people in this country who want energy savings. It's like the, the energy version of a farm share. Right? I yeah. live in the city. I don't have space to, to farm, but I love the idea of fresh vegetables. So I buy a little part of another another farmer's uh, crop. So exactly. I know that um, I'm going to get fresh fruit. The farmer knows that they have customers. Um, so you launched this in 2015? Yeah, yeah. And tell me, so it's it's four years now, give or take. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me about the journey and what it's been like because uh, it's both – you're thinking about technology, you're thinking about human behavior, you're thinking about financing. Oh, and you're also starting and running a business, which has its own dynamic. T- tell me about what the past four years have been like. Yeah, Solstice started as a nonprofit, 501c3, entirely focused on low-income access to community solar. And then in 2016, we realized There are a lot of issues with how people get solar, and software actually was key. Technology was key to making it easy for people to sign up. And all the other software out there was pretty terrible in terms of user experience. We used it ourselves. So we said, okay, let's build our own software. 
And so in 2016, we spun out a regular C corporation business. And that became the kind of market-ready um, software that powers all these community solar projects. Again, our obsession is how do we make it so easy and so affordable that everyone signs it for community solar? And so we still have this nonprofit, 501c3, that's focused on low-income access to solar. But this evolution of what we are offering in the market was really just born out of these lessons that we had from trying to do it and not being heard. And for instance, we try to convince solar developers, hey, you should offer solar to low-income customers because it's the right thing to do, because those are the customers that are most disproportionately affected by climate change, disproportionately affected by pollution, and disproportionately pay a portion of their income for energy. So you should help them. Turns out that's not very convincing to solar developers and financiers. And so we learned that we had to use data. We had to change the way we told the narrative to people with capital in order to compel them to work with low-income populations. We had to speak their language. And has it worked? Where are you right now in terms of your vision and, and the business? Yeah, you know, part of me is so proud of what the team has accomplished at Solstice. And, it, and it's very much a team effort. Um, I really believe that great organizations are built by great teams, not great founders. And so I want to give them credit where credit's due. And I'm so proud of what they've done. The other part of me is really impatient that we're not further along after four years, frankly. And I think that's true in talking to all my entrepreneur friends. That's true of everyone. You, you want it to be faster than it happens. You think it will be easier to convince people to do a new innovative thing than it is. And what has surprised you the most running a company like this? The thing that has surprised me the most is probably how long it took me to raise money. I thought, you know, you hear, oh, it's going to take you six to 12 months to raise a round of funding. And I hear that and I think, okay, I'm, I'm going to work really hard. And I'm going to do it in four months. And as it turns out, I'm completely average. <laughs> Six to 12 months is about right. And so, again, we're taught as kids that if you work really hard, life's a meritocracy. And you can, the harder you work, the faster the results. And that's been a real big shock to me that that's not always true because so much is outside of our control. I'm Eric Dawson, and I'm speaking with Steph Spears, a co-founder and the CEO of Solstice. You're listening to On Course, and we'll be back with more after a break. On Course is presented as part of the Inclusive Leadership Initiative. With support from the City Foundation, Echoing Green launched the Inclusive Leadership Initiative to expand its support of leaders that represent and work with communities of color. Together, Echoing Green and the City Foundation are supporting the next generation of leaders who are helping create economic and social opportunities for young women and men of color across the United States. Welcome back. I'm Eric Dawson, and this is On Course, the podcast from Echoing Green. I'm speaking with Steph Spears, a co-founder and the CEO of Solstice. As a leader, as a woman of color, in an industry that I'm assuming is dominated by men. What have you uncovered around the systematic either biases or opportunities about how you show up just by showing up? 
Yeah, that's come up most often in things like speaking engagements and fundraising because that requires a lot of external engagement. For instance, I'll often try to get, um, if I get a speaking engagement, I'll try to get someone on my team the opportunity. So I'll say, hey, can so-and-so do it? And if it's a male on my team, they'll say, no, actually, we really were looking for a woman and a woman of color. And so I often will check the box for these conferences who feel like they need a person of color. And I check, you know, the woman and and uh, yellow and and queer, you know, boxes. And I wish the industry were more diverse because it is an industry full of older Caucasian men for the most part. And it feels like not only do we have to convince the customer that we are trustworthy and we're offering a product that will only save them money with no downside, we also have to convince solar developers and financiers to take us seriously because my co-founder is also another woman of color and we're both on the younger end of the energy spectrum of ages. And so people look at us and they say, oh, that's so cute. You know, these this new company that's fighting for low income, underserved communities and energy run by two women of color. It It's a little bit of an uphill battle. Good for you. Right. <laughs> it's that pat on the head and then sending you back to the kids table or, or wherever they wherever they send you. Yeah. Sometimes it is like that. But they're also I, I don't want to paint too one sided of a picture. They're also also incredible advisors that we've had that got interested in us because they got really excited that we appear to be competent and can also and and represent um, underrepresented minorities in this space as well. And then I will say one thing, which is that in creating an organization, you're trying to offer a product that doesn't exist in the world. So again, you're trying to create a world as you think it should be as opposed to as it is. But the other way you can do that is to create a team that reflects the world rather than the industry you're in. So energy, for example, it would be really easy to hire uh, younger or uh, Caucasian folks to our team. And we work really hard to recruit from think places like community colleges uh, and, and, and hire people with non-traditional backgrounds because we want our team to be more diverse than the entire energy industry. So if you go to our team page on our website, solstice.us, you'll see that we don't look like the typical solar company. And we're really working hard to keep that up. Often the social entrepreneur story is one of moving from success to success. And of course, as we know, it's much more of a roller coaster. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I want to spend just a moment on the the dips in addition to the great success that you have. And um, I'm thinking about the story of your mom and what she gave up to create opportunities for you. And I'm curious, as a social entrepreneur, what have you had to give up to do this work? I think the biggest cost of doing this work is being less available to people you love. So family and friends. I have an incredible partner, and I call him the unofficial co-founder of Solstice. And I don't live in the same state as him because Solstice is based in Boston and his job is based in D.C. And that we've been doing for as long as Solstice has been around, so four years, and that's not fair to him. And the other thing is I would like to help my mom more with expenses and financial support. 
And and I don't get to do that as much as I want because I have chosen a life where I learn, earn a salary that's below market. And that feels like a great disservice to her, the person who has helped me the most in my life in service of this greater mission for, you know, justice and equity. It, it, there's some... There's something uncomfortable with that tension. Is there a moment you've thought of quitting? Yeah, definitely. I mean, they the industry calls it a solar coaster, by the way. So the roller coaster hey. you described is very on point. And there have been moments where we barely made payroll. And... We had to take out personal loans ourselves in order to make sure that we could still pay people and not fire them and not disrupt their lives. Ironically, my own credit score in the course of of doing this work has dipped below uh, what I worked very hard to get it to. And what's ironic about it is that our work at Solstice is largely about boosting other people's credit scores using their financial payment data for utility bills. So there's a financial inclusion aspect of our work. And so as we're working on Solstice and doing that work for other families, our own credit scores are taking a little bit of a dive. But I go back to the point you made, which is my mother has sacrificed so much to to give me the opportunity to even choose this work. And I don't deal with half the indignities that she deals with at work. You know, she's the person when you call an airline and you want to change your flight, she's the call representative on the other end of the line. And she gets yelled at every day to go back to her own country because of her immigrant accent. She has worked for a union for many years, and she still earns less than every single employee in my own organization. And so I don't suffer nearly as much as she suffers every day. So many people in this world suffer. 42% of this country earns less than $40,000 with a family of four. Um, If you graduate college and you start working at Solstice immediately, you will earn more than that as a single person. And it's not as if we're, you know, rolling in money or paying our, our folks market. I'm trying to get there. But the point is people suffer more and we get to choose this work. And that's an incredibly lucky thing to have. And that's the gift. It's a gift. Yeah. So if you had an opportunity to go back to your 22-year-old self, graduating from college, what advice would you give? I often think about what would we all do if we didn't feel fear or feel the need to be, quote-unquote, successful? What risks would we take? What dreams would we pursue? What would we do if we didn't feel those things? And so graduating, especially growing up without a whole lot of money, graduating from schools where the chic thing to do was to go into consulting or iBanking, or I think the modern day version of consulting and iBanking is working for a big tech company, one of the big four. And I just want to tell all the 22-year-olds out there that you don't need to chase after someone else's idea of success, because often that means that there are, you're perpetuating a world which has the same winners and the same losers. And there's so much more that we can do to create a better world, but it will sometimes involve some trade-offs. And it doesn't mean that you're going to have to be destitute. You know, 
there's a professor at Yale and his name I think is pronounced as William Dershowitz. I might have gotten that messed up, but he says that you can have a good salary if you're a school teacher, if you're a community organizer, but it means that you're going to have to vacation in Florida rather than Paris. It means you're going to have to live in a modest home as opposed to living in in a big mansion. You're going to have to drive a Honda rather than a Ferrari. But what are those trade-offs against doing work that you love and work that you're suited for and work that creates positive impact in other people's lives? Uh, that's, I think, what true meaning is. And, and so if you could go forward in the future and sit down with your 50-year-old self and ask one question, what would you want to ask? I think I would ask my future self. Hmm. That's so funny. I've never thought of this question ever. I guess I would ask my future self, what is the most non-work meaningful part of your life? And work towards knowing that what that future looks like, work towards cultivating that now. And how do you feel you're doing with cultivating that part of your life right now? I always look back 10 years ago and think, man, what a carefree life that is. You know, it's so free of stress and 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 worries and responsibility. And I know in 10 years, I'll look back at this time and think the, the exact same thing because I don't have uh, little humans to take care of yet. And I'm relatively independent. I am trying to do little things like sleep more and go on hikes with family. My theme of this year, I don't really do resolutions. My theme of this year is Malama Aina, and it's Hawaiian, and I'm from Hawaii. And Malama Aina means to take care of the land, but figuratively it means to take care of that which nourishes you. So I'm trying to do better about taking care of the people and places that I love. So that's all a long way of saying that I booked five tickets to return home this year to see my mom and my brother and my sister more and trying to do a better job with that. That's amazing. I want to move now to the this lightning round. So I'm going to ask you a question and in just a, a sentence or two, um, first thing that pops to your mind, worst advice you've ever gotten? I guess the worst advice I ever got was from an investor that said that he thought I would have no problem raising a seed round because I dressed the right way and I was pretty. And he said, you know, you just have to act a certain way to get funding as a woman leader in business. And I just think that's obviously terrible advice on many levels and it just perpetuates a lot of stereotypes that shouldn't exist and potentially one of the reasons why women only raise 2% of the venture capital out there. Worst advice you've ever given? The worst advice I've ever given is probably to tell someone on the team to just try to get it done because that's not helpful to hear. And just because I am willing to work a lot of hours doesn't mean I should expect other people to do that. And a lot of the journey of the past four years has been recalibrating the my definition of work-life balance is different than other people's. And there shouldn't be any judgment about that. And people should be able to work in a way that makes them thrive. And really often that comes down to just more flexibility. What does your ideal Saturday look like? 
starting off with a hike in the mountains, and preferably in Hawaii if possible, if teleportation is possible, and then getting sufficiently sweaty enough that you jump in the ocean for a swim. And actually doing a few hours of work would make me happy on an ideal Saturday. And then eating um, good food. And all of these activities, by the way, except work, are prefaced with um, with amazing people that love that you love. So I would love to do all of these things with good friends and family. And go to a music concert and then go to sleep. If you couldn't be doing the job you have now but could do any job in the world, what would it be? I think I would really enjoy waiting hand and foot on Michelle Obama. I think that I wouldn't mind doing that. Steph, it's such a pleasure to talk to you. Um, One of the hardest things about doing a podcast is uh, folks don't get to see you. And you have this tremendous amount of light in you. And I don't mean that just in a physical sense, but in a manifestation of, of possibilities. So it is um, fitting that you are in the energy business. Um, <laughs> thank you for joining us today. Thank you for what you do, who you are, and for your light. You're very generous, Eric. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be joined by Tia Hodges from the City Foundation, who is a partner for this podcast and a leader in her own right. Tia, I'd love to hear what resonated with you most about Steph's story. Thank you, Eric. I'm honored to join you on behalf of the City Foundation, where we work to promote economic progress and improve the lives of people in low-income communities around the world. The part of Steph's story that really resonated with me was having a mentor who inspired and pushed me past my own expectations. And my mentor support has really led me to thrive. My mentor was great at pushing me beyond my comfort zone. He really challenged me to think about the decisions that I was making and to see a better future for myself, both personally and professionally. What also really resonated was Steph's commitment to promoting economic progress. At the City Foundation, we invest in programs that help emerging leaders pursue their ambitions to better their communities. More specifically, we made a commitment to invest $100 million over three years to impact the lives of 500,000 youth globally. We're proud to partner with Echoing Green as part of this commitment and to work with the organization to support leaders like Steph and help elevate their voices through this podcast. I can't wait to tune in to the next conversation. To find out more about Echoing Green, go to echoinggreen.org. Don't miss any of our episodes. Subscribe where you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a rating so other listeners can find us. I'm Eric Dawson. Stay on course.